You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Of course, it's great to be anywhere at my age. You say, how old are you? I'm 84. I've been saved for 65 years. I've been preaching for 65 years. And uh, my wife and I have been married for 61 years. Uh, I assume you're clapping for her. It's amazing. You, uh, the Bible is literally right. He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor from the Lord. What a, what a gem uh, she got. Second most important decision I ever made. Uh, and it's just wonderful. And, uh, what a uh, true help me she's been. We have six children, 15 grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. And so the Bible is right. You get blessed to the third and fourth generation. Uh, which we have uh, indeed, and uh, a lot of them are coming home for Thanksgiving, so I'm looking forward uh, to that when I get back this week to get together uh, at Thanksgiving time. Uh, I've been uh, preaching on apologetics since 1950, uh, however many years that is, that's uh, quite a few years. Uh, and the reason that I got into apologetics is I was witnessing on Skid Row. That's what they called the ghetto in Detroit, Skid Row. And uh, they called uh, the um, homeless uh, bums. We had bums on Skid Row. We didn't have the homeless in the ghetto. And this uh, uh, bum staggered up to me, and he said... Uh, I'm a graduate of Moody Insta Bible Toot. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if he's a graduate of Moody Insta Bible Toot or not, but he knew where one verse was. He said, you're not supposed to be doing this. We were witnessing and sharing Christ with him. He grabbed my Bible, red letter edition, and he flipped right, right to the page. He said, read this, red letters. Jesus said, go and tell no man. He said, now get out of here. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want you to be here. I, I, I had no idea what that verse meant. I had no idea whatsoever. Mormons had just tied me up in knots. Jehovah's Witnesses confused me, and this drunk stops me dead in my tracks and quotes right from my red-letter edition of the Bible that Jesus doesn't want me to do it. So I had to make a decision. Either stop witnessing or start getting answers. I dedicated my life to getting answers. Uh, and I'm still uh, getting answers. I've written uh, books on it. One is on this very topic. The Bible, are there any errors? And I'd like to uh, treat the topic of still being attacked today. The Da Vinci Code said many have made a trade of delusions and false miracles. Deceiving the stupid multitude, that's us. Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. 
Well, what's amazing to me is Mona Lisa. I think that's Mona Lisa there. Right above her left eye, it says, a novel. A novel. Uh, and we're the stupid multitude. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who lives in North Carolina, where I live, uh, probably the top skeptic today on the Bible, said these New Testament manuscript copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. These copies differ from each other in so many places, we don't even know how many differences there are. In his book, Misquoting Jesus, which he did a lot. Uh, <laughs> then there's a Jesus seminar, 70 plus scholars who sit around, true story, with colored beads and vote on how many of Jesus' sayings Jesus said. I don't know if you get that or not, but uh, they came to the conclusion that we have to doubt about 98% of the red-letter edition of the Gospels, uh, whether Jesus said it or, or not. Uh, I think they should use colored marbles because they lost their marbles. Uh, I want to give you three reasons, three simple, straightforward uh, reasons why the Bible cannot have any errors in it. Reason number one, God the Father. Reason number two, God the Son. Reason number three, you guessed it, God the Holy Spirit. You say you're being facetious. No, I'm not. Uh, these are the three reasons that the Bible cannot err. Let's take reason number one. God the Father. God cannot err. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. It may look like it has errors. There are people who think there are errors in the Bible, but there can't be errors in the Bible because it's God's word and God can't err. Now, there are only a couple ways to avoid that conclusion. You can deny God cannot err, or you can deny the Bible's word of God, or both. That's it. But mark it down, if God cannot err, and the Bible is the word of God, then the Bible cannot err. Jesus said of the scripture, your word, God, is truth. That has truth here and there, but is truth itself. Now, in light, there is no darkness. In good, there is no evil. And in truth, there is no error. The word of God is truth itself. The psalmist said, the sum of your word is truth. The whole thing, everything is truth. Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. Isn't it interesting? that man, who is a liar, is saying of God's word, which is truth, that there are errors in it. Titus 1.2 said, the God who cannot lie. If God tried to lie, it would get stuck in his throat. By his nature, he cannot lie. Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 18, it's impossible 
for God to lie. Literally impossible. You know, there are a lot of things God can't do. He can't make a stick with one end. He can't make a square circle. He can't make two mountains without a valley. He can't change. I, the Lord, change not. And he cannot lie. It is contrary to his very nature. Jesus said, If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture, singular, referred to the whole of the Old Testament, cannot be broken, is literally unbreakable. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men making the word of God of no effect through your traditions. The Bible is the word of God. The whole of the Bible is the word of God. Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now that's an interesting word. In the original language it means is breathed out. All scripture is breathed out of the very voice of God. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Over and over again, the New Testament refers to the whole Old Testament as the word of God. B.B. Warfield, a great scholar to the turn of the century, uh, wrote a book defending the inerrancy of the Bible. He has a whole chapter dedicated to this very point. On the one hand, in the New Testament, it'll say, God says. But if you look in the Old Testament, it's quoting the Scripture. It's the Scriptures say. Then sometimes it reverses it. The Scriptures say, Genesis 2, 22, and God says. So God says what the Bible says, and the Bible says what God says. They're literally interchangeable. I'm not going to go through all those, but let me give you a few examples. Genesis 12:3. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name before he was converted and became Abraham. Galatians 3, when it's quoting that, says, The scripture preached to Abraham, saying, Well, what the Lord said, the Bible said. And what the Bible said, the Lord said. The simplest way to describe what we believe about the Bible is whatever the Bible says, God says. Whatever the Bible affirms is true, is true. The Lord said and the scripture said. Or look at the reverse, Genesis 2.24. The author of Genesis, Moses, said, A man shall leave his father and mother. But when that's quoted in the New Testament, in Matthew 19, he, God, said, a man shall leave his father and mother. What the Bible said, God said. Paul said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, which it was, but as what it really is, the word of God. For the words that come from a prophet of God are really the word of God. Therefore, the Bible is the word of God. God can't err. Hence, the Bible cannot err. 
reason number two, the Bible can't have any errors in it. God the Son. Whatever the Son of God affirmed as true is true. Jesus affirmed the Bible as the Word of God. Therefore, it is true that the Bible is the Word of God. But the Word of God cannot err. Jesus affirmed the following about the Bible. Sometime if you have a, a rainy Saturday, just get a red-letter edition of the Bible. Just read the Gospels and just read the red letters and ask yourself this question. What did Jesus, the Son of God, say about the Bible, the Word of God? And you'll find something like this. He affirmed that the Bible has divine authority. It's not like any other book, having only human authority. Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, get this, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now he's referring to the Bible. It is written. That phrase occurs about 90 times in the New Testament or the equivalent of it. Over and over again, it's one of the most often repeated phrases in the Bible. It is written that every word comes out of the mouth of God. <laughs> Two, the Bible is indestructible. I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. It's literally indestructible. Irishmen live next door to a Scotsman. He built a stone fence three feet high and three feet wide. The Scotch neighbor said to him, what would you do that for? He said, so when the wind blows it over, it'll be just as tall as it was before. <laughs> now, the Bible is like that. The winds of skepticism and doubt have been blowing on it for 2,000 years. Uh, and it's just as strong as it was before. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not the dotty of an eye or the cross of a T will pass away until all is accomplished. The Bible is unbreakable. This is one of my favorite uh, verses. John 10:35. The word of God, which came to them, and is called the scriptures, the graphe, the writings, cannot be broken. Notice four things in the context that says about the Bible. It's called the Torah, the law, in the previous verse. The word of God, the scripture, and unbreakable. A good definition of the Bible. The word of God, the scriptures, cannot be broken. The Bible has ultimate supremacy. You'll find uh, on your Saturday afternoon as you read the red letters of the gospel. For the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God. The Bible is called the word of God and has ultimate authority. It's above every human tradition. I don't care how venerable it is, how old it is, 
how many people have believed it for how many years, but the word of God takes precedence over every human tradition. Jesus also said that the Bible is historically reliable. Oh, the Bible is being attacked today. By many people who say, Jonah is not true. Jonah is a whale of a tail, not a tail of a whale. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus said, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, in the original language, that strong contrast, just as, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Jesus is right about Jonah, then you can trust that he died and rose from the grave. If he didn't die and rise from the grave, you can't trust him when he speaks of Jonah. Jesus said in John 3, If you don't believe me when I speak of earthly things, how can you believe me when I speak of heavenly things? If you don't believe me when I tell you how the heavens go, how can you believe me when I tell you how to go to heaven? For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Noah also is denied by the critics. Jesus affirmed there was a Noah, there was a flood. They were married and given in marriage before the flood. It goes into many details. As it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. Do you think Jesus would compare his death and resurrection and his second coming to a myth, to a legend? No way. The Bible is scientifically accurate. The most disputed part of the Bible is Genesis 1 through 3, which talks about the creation of Adam and Eve. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The Bible is scientifically accurate. It's historically reliable. It's immovable. It's unshakable. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The Bible has factual inerrancy. Inerrant means without error. It is factually correct. You do err, not knowing the Bible, which doesn't err. He put his bony finger right in the nose of the Sadducees. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits. Uh, They didn't believe in the resurrection and the life to come. That's why they were sad, you see. And Jesus said, you do err. He didn't mince his words. You do err not knowing the scriptures, which don't err. He also said, your word is truth. Not has truth here and there, but is truth. 
Reason number two, that the Bible cannot err. God the Son. Whatever the Son of God affirmed as true is true. Jesus affirmed the Bible as the Word of God. Therefore, it's true that the Bible is the Word of God. But the Word of God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. There's an English scholar who came over to America a number of years ago. He stayed at our home. His name is John Wenham, wrote a book, Christ in the Bible, in which he said to Christ, the Old Testament, New Testament wasn't written yet, was true, authoritative, inspired. To him, what the scripture said, God said. Christ and the Bible. So here's the plain logic of the matter. Whatever Jesus taught is true. Jesus taught the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible is the word of God. If the Bible is not the word of God, he is not the son of God. Because the son of God called the Bible the word of God. And if the son of God who called the Bible the word of God is wrong and doesn't know what he's talking about, then he can't be our savior. If Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior, then mark it down. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, here's a bad argument that you hear quite often. The Bible is also the words of human beings. About 40 different human beings wrote the Bible over a period of 1,500 uh, or 1,600 years. The Bible is the words of human beings. Human beings err. To err is human. To love is divine. Therefore, the Bible errs. I say that's a bad argument. And here's the reason I say that. Because of the second premise. Human beings do not always err. Therefore, you cannot conclude that the Bible errs. If the Bible is the words of human beings and human beings always err, then the Bible would err. But if human beings don't always err, then it does not follow that the Bible errs. I could write a book without any errors in it. I'll do one for you right now. Page one. One plus one is two. Page two. Two plus two is four. Page 3, 3 plus 3 is 6. I can go for three or four more pages <laughs> without making any errors. There are math books where every problem is worked out correctly. There are phone books where every phone is recorded correctly. Human beings don't always err. The error is in the word always. Human beings don't always err, and human beings do not err when moved by God who cannot err. How can an infallible God take fallible human beings and produce an infallible book? It's very simple. 
God could draw a straight line with a crooked stick. You could draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And surely God Almighty can take an imperfect human author and make a perfect book. Because they don't always have to err. He can't err. And when he comes upon people who can err and uses them as his instruments to produce a book that cannot err, he's drawn a straight line with a crooked stick. Jesus declared, The Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said to you. A lot of people ask, well, how could the 12 apostles remember all those things Jesus said? According to most scholars, they didn't write them down in the New Testament for several decades, 20, 30 years after they were said. How can you remember things 20 or 30 years later? Well, let me tell you. I can remember things very vividly 60 years ago. For example, uh, my favorite youth speaker named Don Loney uh, told some, some really wild uh, jokes. I remember them word for word. Here's one of them. Did you hear about the cross-eyed school teacher who was so cross-eyed she couldn't see eye to eye with her pupils? <laughs> she was so cross-eyed that when she cried, the tears ran down her back. <laughs> she was so cross-eyed that when the tears round and went, ran down her back, they studied her and they found out she had bacteria. Say, that's a stupid joke. I told you. <laughs> I told you it was a stupid joke. But I remember word for word that joke that I heard first in 1950. 1950. Now, if I can remember a stupid joke word for word, the apostles aren't going to have any problem. Inspired by God to write what they remembered because. The Holy Spirit brought all things to their remembrance, whatever Jesus said to them. Peter said, For the prophecy came not in old by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That's how. God came upon them, guarded them from making any error, and the God who cannot err used people who could err to produce a book that did not err because it's not just the words of men, it's the word of God. Now here's a good analogy. The living word and the written word. Christ is the living word of God. And the Bible is the written word of God. The Savior and the Scripture. Christ has a divine nature, and the Bible has a divine nature. Christ had a human nature. He was 100% human, and he was 100% God. And 
The Bible has two natures, divine nature and the human nature. Christ is one person, combines those two natures, and the Bible is one set of sentences or propositions that combine the two. The Bible, the Savior, rather, has a divine nature and a human nature in one person without sin. The Bible has a human and divine nature in one set of propositions without error. Jesus is said to be without sin, Hebrews 4.15, had no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, was without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1.19, is righteous, 1 John 2.1, is pure, 1 John 3.3. Likewise, the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. It's perfect, Psalm 19.7. It's flawless, Proverbs 30, verse 4. It cannot be broken. Of course, there are differences between the Bible and Christ. The Bible is not God. Christ is. The Bible should not be worshipped. Jesus should be worshipped. However... The similarity is that both are called the Word of God, and the Word of God cannot err. Therefore, whether Christ or the Bible, we cannot have error in the Word of God. Here's another bad argument. To speak with humans in the Bible, God must accommodate himself to human language. Suppose you wanted to talk to ants. You'd have to learn the the ant language to speak to them, to communicate with them. The infinite God wants to communicate with us. He has to accommodate to us and learn our language. But human language involves errors. Hence, the Bible must err. Now, what's the fallacy in this argument? Human language does not necessarily involve error. Or else that very claim would involve an error. Now, do you get the point? If the claim that the Bible must err because it's in human language is so, then that very claim that the Bible must err in human language must be an error. Self-defeating contrasts. Here's what God does. He adapts to our finitude, to our limitations. He never accommodates to our errors. God has to adapt himself to our limitness, our finiteness, but he never accommodates to our errors. Illustration. Suppose a young child says to his mother, where do babies come from? Now, if he's just a few years old, you can tell him the stork story. Storks bring them. Or you could say, by accommodating yourself to their finiteness, they come from their mother's tummy. 
The second one is adapting to our finitude, our finiteness. The first one is accommodating to error. Now, what if the child comes a couple of years after that and says, uh, how did babies get in their mother's tummy? Well, now you could say, Daddy placed a seed there. That's adapting to their finitude. It's not false. It's true. But it's not the whole story. In case you don't know, there's more to the story <laughs> than that. I'll tell you after if you'd like to hear the, the rest of the story. The Bible adapts to our finitude. It does not accommodate to error. God can't err, and he can't accommodate to error. Reason number three, God the Holy Spirit. The logic of the argument, the spirit of truth cannot utter errors. It's just contrary to the nature of truth to say the Holy Spirit of truth can utter errors. He can't do it anymore and God can make two mountains without a valley. The Bible is the utterance of the spirit of truth. We already went through those verses. Therefore, the Bible cannot utter errors. It's contrary to the very nature of God. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, David said, and his word was on my tongue. That's what David said on his deathbed. Now, deathbed testimony is highly valuable, normally accepted in court as the truth. The Holy Spirit had pushed his word on my tongue, and I wrote it. He wrote 72 of the 150 Psalms. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every single word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every single word of the Bible comes from the mouth of God. How is it that when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into some of the truth? No. He will guide you into all truth. Because he's not limited. He's the spirit of truth. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but in words which the Holy Spirit teaches. I'm always amused at people who don't like the Apostle Paul. They say, well, he was just giving his opinion in 1 Corinthians. That wasn't really God. That was Paul speaking. Well, that's strange. He starts the book off by saying, these are words which the Holy Spirit teaches. A little later on, he said, I have the Holy Spirit. And in the end of the book, he says, what I write unto you is the commands of God. Does that sound to you like his opinion? No, what Paul wrote, God wrote. Paul's words were Christ's words. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, it's breathed out of the mouth of God himself. Now, conclusion. 
The Bible cannot err because the Bible is the word of God and God can't err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. It's impossible for the Bible to have any errors. Three reasons why the Bible can't err. God the Father can't err. God the Son can't err. And God the Holy Spirit cannot err. Now listen, because this is the first punchline. To deny that the Bible is without error is an attack on the authenticity of God the Father, the authority of God the Son, and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. To say there's one single error in the Bible is to engage in an all-out attack on the Holy Trinity. It's not a trivial matter. I hear people say a very silly thing. Well, what difference does it make if there's a little geographical error in the Bible? John Calvin, in the list of things uh, he gave against Servetus, the heretic, listed a geographical detail as a way that he denied the word of God. Because one little error is attack on the authenticity of God the Father, the authority of God the Son, and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In short, it's an all-out attack on the triune God. Now, of course, the uh, skeptic and the liberal has an objection to this. He says, this is an invalid all-or-nothing-at-all argument. According to this reasoning, one tiny error in the Bible would disprove Christianity. And I'm not going to throw the Bible out just because there's one little tiny error in the Bible. I heard very fine Christians giving this reason. Let me respond. Not so. One proven error in the Bible only proves the Bible's divine authority. It would not disprove the Bible's reliability or Christianity's authenticity. It would not disprove God's existence, miracles, the resurrection, or the deity of Christ, which are all part of essential Christianity. My wife is a very good bookkeeper. Every time I write a check, I mess up the checkbook. So she's delegated the responsibility of keeping us out of prison. And she makes very, very few errors over the 61 years that we've been married. I don't remember any major ones. Now, if she made one error, what would that prove? Nothing she's ever said is, is reliable. None of her mathematical conclusions uh, can be trusted? No. It would prove that she's reliable, even highly reliable, but she's not infallible. The same is true of the scriptures. A bookkeeper who makes a rare error is still reliable 
in general. But only the Bible is infallible, cannot make any errors. St. Augustine had a very powerful and succinct way of making his point. He said, if we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it's not allowable to say, the author of this book is mistaken. Cross that off their list. you got four possibilities when you come upon an alleged error in the Bible. You can say, God Almighty made a mistake. Cross that off. God can't err. Or you can say, the manuscript is faulty. Or you can say, the translation is wrong. Or you can say, you have not understood. So we have three alternatives if we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. We can say we got a faulty manuscript, a bad translation, or an incorrect interpretation. But we are not allowable to say, God Almighty, the author of this book who cannot err, is mistaken uh, here. So the Bible doesn't err, but the Bible critics do err. Let me give you a few examples. First, there's the error of confusing the unexplained with the unexplainable. There are a lot of things in the Bible I cannot explain. But there's nothing in the Bible that's unexplainable. For example, the study of science, there are a lot of things that scientists cannot explain. We cannot explain why we found braided rings on Saturn when we sent our rocket out there. What have we got, a cosmic comedian out there? Heavenly hairdresser? I mean, what's going on out there? Braided rings on Saturn. We still don't know why. But there are. So the study of the scripture and the study of science are very parallel. There are things we can't explain, but that doesn't mean they're not explainable. And it doesn't mean that we should all give up studying science and become plumbers. No. Just because we can't explain it doesn't mean it's unexplainable. There are many difficulties in the Bible. There are many difficulties in science. We're going to throw out science because we can't explain them? What do we do? We assume they are explainable, even though we can't explain them. And if we study long enough, guess what? Science gets explanations. We once didn't know how bumblebees could fly because the wings are too small and the body is too big. Now we know how. They have a power pack on them and they make the wings go at tremendous speed. We once didn't know who the Hittites were, as they were only mentioned in the Bible. Now we have the whole Hittite library in Turkey. We once didn't know how Moses could write the first five books of the Old Testament because there was no writing in his day. Now we know the writing goes back 2,000 years earlier than that. So many of the things once assumed uh, to be 
inexplainable are now explained. What do we need to do? We need to do with the Bible the same thing that scientists do with science. They don't give up science. They don't give up studying it. They continue to do research. And what happens? When they continue to do research, they find the answers to many of the things that were previously unexplained. What happens when we say the Bible? We continue to study and we find answers to things once we couldn't explain. For example, there's the air of misinterpretation. Genesis 1 says, The sun was not made until the fourth day, yet there was evening and morning light from the first day. How can that be? Answer, first there was light on the first day when God said, let there be light. And there was morning, very word is used. Second, there was light from the first day, but the light holders, sun, moon, and stars, didn't become visible until the fourth day just as we can see uh, that it is daytime on a foggy day, even though we cannot see the sun or uh, the other heavenly bodies. Then there's air of overlooking crucial evidence. Critics say Cain married a wife and had children, Genesis 4. But there were no women to marry. There was Adam, Eve, and Cain, Cain had killed Abel, so there was nobody for Cain to marry. Where did Cain get his wife? Overlooked evidence. In the very next chapter, it says the days of Adam and Eve, after they fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but you can have a lot of kids in 800 years. We had six kids in eight years. First eight years after our marriage, we had six children. Add zeros to that, and that would be, we could have 60 kids in 800 years. There were plenty of women to marry in 800 years. Error of assuming a partial report is a false report. There are a lot of partial reports in the Bible. Example, the inscription on the cross. Matthew said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark said, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. And John said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Not one single inscription on the cross is identical to the other. They all have the main things in it. And the complete sentence probably read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. No one contradicts the other. One of them doesn't say, this is Jesus of Arimathea, the king of the Gentiles. Uh... So they all tell part of the truth. Together they tell the whole truth. A partial report is not a false report. Every time my wife buys a new dress and she asks me, what do you think? I give her a partial report. 
I want to save our marriage. So if I don't like the uh, dress, I'll say, it's a beautiful color. <laughs> Note, each gospel has the essential part. All together gives the whole uh, statement. There's no contradiction. Then there's the error of saying divergent accounts are false. Matthew 28 says there was one angel at the tomb after the resurrection. John says there were two angels at the tomb. They said, now wait a minute. There can't be one angel and two angels. That's a contradiction. No, it isn't. In fact, there's an infallible mathematical rule. I like infallible things. Infallible mathematical rule that explains that. Listen carefully. Wherever there are two, there's always one. <laughs> Never fails. If there are two, there's one. There. Notice that Matthew didn't say there was only one. He said there was one. You have to add the word only to make it a contradiction. And if you have to add to the Bible to make the Bible contradiction, you're the problem, not the Bible. Wherever there are two, there's always one. It never fails. Note, Matthew did not say there was only one angel there at the same time and place that there were two. Matthew 27 said Judas hanged himself. Acts 1 says, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Not too good right after lunch, but uh, there you have it. That's not a contradiction. If you're going to commit suicide, you've got to get your body off the ground. If your feet are on the ground, it won't work. I don't know if you realize that or not. So let's say you use a limb of a tree. Get your body off the ground so that uh, the suicide will work. And then later when the body falls off or is cut off, somebody comes along and cuts the rope, or uh, it falls of natural uh, decay, then the body will break in pieces and the entrails will gush out. Sometime after hanging himself, his body fell to the ground, broke open, and his entrails gushed out. Then there's the error of forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. Notice these are all errors of the critics, not errors in the Bible. The Bible was written for the common man in common language. In fact, the New Testament is called Koine Greek, the common language, trade language of the day. The Bible is written for the common man in the common language. It uses everyday observational language. For example, it's not unscientific, it's merely pre-scientific. If the Bible used modern scientific language in the first century, nobody would understand it for 2,000 years. Illustration, the Bible speaks of the sun standing still, Joshua 10, and of the sun rising, Joshua 1. No one questions the sun rising, but that's just as, quote, unscientific 
i.e. pre-scientific, as the sun standing still. In fact, every scientist every day does the same same thing. You never heard of a scientist say, honey, look at a beautiful earth rotation. And yet every meteorologist every morning will say sunrise today and sunset tonight. Even contemporary meteorologists speak that way. There's the error of forgetting that only the original text of the Bible (coughs) is inspired. Not every copy is without error. God only inspired the original where the divine produces the original, it's without error. When man starts to get involved, then errors become possible. For example, Ahaziah was 42 years old in Second Chronicles, 22-2. In Second Kings, he was 22 years old. Now, you can't be both 42 and 22 at the same time in the same sense. It's talking about the same man, same father, same grandfather, same son. That's an error. An error in the copy, not an error in the original. Here's another one. Solomon had 40,000 stalls in 1 Kings 4, and Solomon had 4,000 stalls in 2 Chronicles 9. It's an error. It's the kind of error you like on your paycheck. Extra zero here or there. Never heard anything. But it's error in the copy. Note several important things. These errors are found only in copies, not in the original text. No one ever found an original text of the Bible with an error in it. You say, well, nobody's found an original, but they could. We got some to go back to the time of the original. It's possible that it may find. Uh, some, so it makes it possible. Secondly, these are rare. They're not hundreds of them. They're hands full of them. And they affect no doctrine of Scripture. Let me say it again. There is not a single doctrine in the Bible, not major or minor doctrine in the Bible, that's affected by any of these copious errors. We usually know which one is correct by the context. For example, we know Ahaziah was 22, not 42. Because if he had been 42, he'd be older than his dad. Which is a neat trick if you could pull it, but it's hard. <laughs> Let me give you an example. What if you receive this message? You have won $10 million. Is there anyone here who would not pick up their money? Speak up now or forever hold your peace. You're all very smart. But there's an error there. How do you know? Well, I'm pretty sure that should have been an O, not a pound sign. Second, yeah? It's a good deduction. What if you got that? You have won $10 million. Now you're really sure, aren't you? Why? (laughs) Because now you have the O. Now you have every letter, and you have every letter but one twice. And if you got it like this, you have won $10 million, you'd be absolutely sure 
In fact, the more errors in the copies, get this, the more sure you are of the original. Because you get another confirmation. Every time you get an error, you get a confirmation of every other letter. Note, even with copious mistakes, 100% of the message comes through. How much of the Bible is in doubt? How much of the Bible doctrine is in doubt? Zero. Even with copious mistakes, 100% of the message comes through. The more errors, the more sure we are of the message. The Bible has less errors in the copies than this message does. There are less errors, manuscript errors, in the copies than that message you have won $10 million. There's another error of the critics. Taking a text out of its context, there's an example of it. There is no God. Psalm 14.1. And the fool has said in his heart, that's taking it out of context. Can't do that. Example of a text taken out of context. The Bible says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. In fact, there's a man who denied the inerrancy of the Bible based on this. He even wrote an article in a scholarly journal on it, and the whole seminary eventually took inerrancy out of its doctrinal statement because of this. The mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. It's not. The orchid seed is. Science proves that the orchid seed is the smallest seed. So don't we have an error in the Bible? No, we have an error in the interpretation of the Bible. The mustard seed was literally the smallest one, get this, quote, which a man took and sowed in his field. The first century peasant farmer didn't have orchid seeds. He had mustard seeds. And the mustard seed was literally the smallest one which he had and which he took and sowed in his field. There's no contradiction once you understand the context. Here's another example. <coughs> Mike Lacona, a evangelical scholar, believes there's a contradiction in the Gospels. And yet he claims to believe in inerrancy. That's uh, impossible. He said there are two different crucifixion days are given. Mark 14, 12 said Jesus was crucified on the first day of unleavened bread when they, the Jews, sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will we have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So this was Thursday. The Passover meal was Friday. Jesus was crucified. But John 19, 4 says, Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he, Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. This would seem to indicate that Jesus was crucified on Thursday when they were still preparing for the Passover. So if Mark says Jesus was crucified on Friday, and the other Gospels say he was crucified on Thursday, that would be a contradiction problem. That's an error of our understanding, not an error in the Gospels. 
Preparation is a word used for Friday. The day of preparation for a Sabbath or a feast. For example, since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. The great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said, This is Friday of Passover week, the preparation day before the Sabbath of Passover. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, said preparation regularly refers to Friday. That is, the preparation of the Sabbath is Friday. It's not a contradiction at all. It's two different ways of referring to the same time period, both of which are Friday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. Now, there are 800 more of these. I spent 10 years studying 800 of these. Put them in a book called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. After studying 800 of these alleged contradictions, how many errors do you suppose that I found? Zero. Zero. Except errors in our misunderstanding of the Bible. Now, for a more comprehensive list, I encourage you to go to our website, defendinginerrancy.com, where we have a comprehensive list of alleged errors in the Bible, but there are no errors in the text. Mark Twain said it best. He said, it's not the part of the Bible I don't understand that troubles me the most. It's the part of the Bible I do understand that troubles me the most. You know, I've spent a lot of my time studying alleged errors in the Bible. They don't trouble me the most. What troubles me the most is the verses that I do understand, like thou shalt not murder, Exodus 20. And we have killed almost 60 million tiny little babies since the 1970s. That bothers me the most. Let's turn the logic right side up. We should not be criticizing the Bible. We should be letting the Bible criticize us. We shouldn't be reading the Bible to find errors in it. We should be reading the Bible like a mirror that shows errors in us. Search me, O God. See these wicked ways that be in me. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is a discerner, literally a critic, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You can go through life, if you're a skeptic or an agnostic, spending your entire life nitpicking at the Bible, trying to find errors in it, and go to a Christless eternity. Or you can spend your life looking at the Bible, letting it reflect errors in your life that you could change and be a better person because of it. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is a discerner, critic, of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. The poet put it best. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. 
How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and better all these hammers so? Just one, said he. Then said with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammer's gone. The grass withers. Flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Norman Geisler. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Norman's ministry by visiting normangeisler.com.